Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right, everybody, this is the first time I've had three guests on. I'm very, very excited for the three that I got. These are uh, some very, very intelligent minds on the foreign policy front, much, much smarter than me. So, uh, hell, that's why they're here. So I got Connor, Kyle, and Pat all from antiwar.com, right? Well, I'm from the Libertarian Institute. Kyle's from uh, both, and Pat's uh, from the Libertarian Institute as well. Oh, okay, man, I really but we're already <laughs> we do we get articles and things up on antiwar.com and shows too so cool all right well let's get a, a brief introduction from everybody uh we'll start with connor and then uh kyle and pat and then we'll uh, kind of get rocking and rolling here on what this one's all about yeah sure so i'm i'm connor freeman i'm a writer at the libertarian institute i co-host conflicts of interest with kyle and uh, will porter and uh and th- i mean that's pretty much i write pretty much exclusively on foreign policy and uh I mean, that's, that's kind of my thing. That's more or less my bio. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm Kyle Anslone, opinion editor at antiwar.com news editor at the libertarian Institute. I co-host conflicts of interest with Connor, uh, at the news roundup are at the Institute. Now I'm dropping a whole bunch of uh, news stories every day. And so we just put out one on a Texas prosecutor who was clerking for a judge writing jury instructions in a case he was the prosecutor for and uh put a guy on death row so yeah check that out yeah uh Patrick McFarlane I'm a practicing attorney I have my own law practice in Wisconsin 
I handle criminal law and family law, but I also uh, host the Liberty Weekly podcast, have since about 2017. And uh, I'm also a writer at the Libertarian Institute, where the uh, Liberty Weekly podcast is also featured there. And then, and then Connor, I know you said this, but yeah, our writing has appeared on, on antiwar.com. So as long as I can hang my hat on that hook, I will do it because it's, here. it's such a huge honor. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of got a whole uh, libertarian circle jerk here where, uh, you know, we, you know, one hand kind of feeds the other. <laughs> so um, the reason why I wanted to have you guys on is because um, with the rise of the paleos and this kind of new right, if you will, um, we've been hearing a lot about China and Trump was, you know, kind of famous for China, China. And, you know, it comes from China, the whole deal with uh, COVID-19. And um, it seems like over the last two years, we've just been beaten over the head with this from guys who are seemingly good on a lot of issues. But then as soon as you say China, these guys just go absolutely nuts. So um, we can kind of go in the same order that we started with. Um, I wanted to kind of give the devil its due, per se. And let's kind of talk about the actual threat of China and then where it may be a little bit overblown. So, uh, Connor, go ahead, um, kind of start off wherever here. Well, uh, I mean, as far as um, U.S. relations uh, with China, I think, I mean, more, uh, pretty much they, they don't really pose any threat to us, certainly militarily. Uh, one of the main problems, though, is you have, you know, a massive American empire in uh, the Asia Pacific uh, and we're building a permanent forward uh, base uh, in um, in Southeast Asia in particular. Obama launched something called the Asia Pivot in 2011, which was being agitated for at the turn of this century uh, by groups like Project for a New American Century, you know, the Robert Kagans and Bill Crystals of the world. And uh, essentially, the U.S. since the end of the Cold War has had a policy of maintaining global hegemony. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying world empire and domination. And so uh, one of the main things as far as the Asia pivot, and you can trace it back to even, like I said, the, the P, some of the PNAC documents, they want to position two thirds of all air and naval forces in that region to essentially contain China's rise uh, to becoming uh, you know, a great power itself. And this is more codified in the under Trump's administration, which is, you know, the, the national security strategy of, uh, you know, great power competition with Russia and China. So uh, in the midst of that, we have inserted ourselves into uh, sort of the disputes over, you know, various uh, most uh, largely uninhabited islands, uh, islets, archipelagos and features in the South China Sea, uh, where there are, you know, myriad overlapping claims between all the different countries there. Um, but we, uh, starting with uh, particularly Trump's State Department, you know, led by Mike Pompeo, have rejected all those claims. And so beginning, actually, this actually started under um, Obama's administration at the agitation of the military establishment and people like John McCain uh, to, you know, sail warships through there on things we call freedom of navigation operations. Um, and, you know, we claim that we're building where we just we all we want is like a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, but in the meantime, what we've done is militarized the whole uh, region more recently, you know, sort of undermine the nonproliferation regime there with uh, these these alliances or military packs like AUKUS with Australia, the UK and the US and providing, uh, you know, nuclear submarine technology to Australia. And we've largely begun to encircle 
China with our allies now increasingly, uh, including European allies like Germany, Britain, uh, and even uh, we've had the Canadians now sailing uh, warships through the Taiwan Strait. But for the most part, I'll just say that as far as uh, as far as like the military situation, which gets built up by a lot of these hawks you're talking about, or just the sort of the paleo thing, it's kind of argued that like China is trying to become the most powerful military in the world. But in fact, uh, what pretty explicitly is going on is they are they are really building up enough of a force to counter U.S. intervention and allied intervention in their near abroad. I mean, they actually call their foreign policy their uh, anti-access area denial. So because we refuse to, you know, stop, you know, this Asia pivot and, and it gets worse and worse under each administration, I mean, we had uh, 2000, uh, you know, spy planes and warplanes flying around these waters, South China Sea, East China Sea, Yellow Sea last year, uh, just by November. Um, we have put ourselves in a situation where, especially, you know, using the Taiwan issue as a way to heighten tensions and send more and more military assets into the region to the island itself. And now it's open that we have troops on the island. We have inserted ourselves unnecessarily into uh, kind of an, an escalation ladder, I would say, with China. And this is explicit. I mean, Joe Biden said in his first congressional address, he goes, we will... Uh, you know, militarize the uh, Asia Pacific region the same way we do with NATO in, in Eastern Europe. And so, I mean, as you can see how that's worked out in Eastern Europe, given everything going on now, it's a, you know, a very, very bad situation. But as far as, I mean, the stuff about, you know, generally, uh, I would just say that, you know, a lot of the stuff we hear from the Hawks is that, you know, they Chinese companies steal our intellectual property. I don't know that that's necessarily a concern of like the American people. That sounds like more of a American corporations concern and, and really not any of our business or a reason to heighten tensions between these uh, states. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about human rights abuses and Pat's the expert in our movement on the whole, uh, you know, the weaker genocide claims, which are unfounded uh, or just not true. Um not to say that there's not repression going on in that region, but it's it's not it, there's no proof that it's an actual genocide. Uh, but again, you know, we have a, a lot of uh, human rights abuses that we're responsible for abroad and here at home. So it's uh, they, they come up with any number of issues to try and scare the American people. But for the most part, I think this is an excuse to build up um, to have a new enemy to justify, you know, trillion dollar year plus uh, military uh, budgets. Cool, cool. Yeah, that, that's a whole hell of a lot that we have to kind of, you know, go on there and unpack. Um, like I said, it just seems like over the last couple of years, this just continues to rise and rise and rise. So, uh, Kyle, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I, I'll let uh, Pat weigh in on the Uyghur stuff because I know he's really good on that yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the one thing I guess, you know, I can add that maybe China do does deserve criticism for is, you know, th like they do like the same thing the U.S. does with the IMF with their uh, Belt and Road Initiative and some of these uh, infrastructure products and loans they're giving some to some developing countries are predatory. Uh, they have... Uh, you know, I think now two are, they have one and are looking at a second military base in Africa. Uh, the first one being just down the road from the U.S. base in Djibouti. And now I think they're looking at putting a second one in Equatorial Guinea. And, and so, I, I mean, these aren't 
good things that China is doing. I mean, if you, it just feels silly to point it out and be like bad China when the U.S. is doing it 10 to 20 times more. But, it, you know, it's worth pointing out that they've done things like, uh, you know, they'll really put pressure on some smaller governments, like some of the Pacific Island governments to change the uh flag on the airport for Taiwan to the uh, Chinese flag and things like that. So, you know, that kind of diplomatic pressure is bad and China does it. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, and it, we're kind of seeing this with the news right now, where if you're anti-war with Russia, then you must be pro-Putin, kind of like in the early 2000s, where if you don't want to go terrorize the Middle East, then you were pro-Saddam or, you know, whatever it was back then. Um and, you know, we could say like, hey, China, some of the stuff that they're doing is definitely not good, but like there's just no reason to have this hot war with them. So um, I was listening to Tim Poole. I know that's uh, Pat's favorite person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was listening to uh, the China Uncensored episode, and we're hearing a lot about organ harvesting and this Uyghur genocide. And they're Uyghur Muslims, which is funny because a lot of the political right um, they're okay with killing people in the Middle East because, you know, they're animals over there and they hate us for our freedom. So it's fine if we kill them. But though, if China's killing Uyghurs, then all of a sudden now we have to, you know, protest about this, even though we're enabling a genocide in Yemen. Um, so Pat, kind of touch on that a little bit, because as uh, the guys here said, and, you know, you're the uh, kind of go-to guy on the Uyghur genocide claim and criticizing Tim Pool. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's a it's a really complex issue just from the outset. And it, it's really hard. It's a nuanced position that you have to hold because it at the same time, the most common accusation you'll get is that you're a genocide denier or that you support the the Chinese Communist Party or like, uh, oh, you don't trust governments at all. So why would you trust what the Chinese government says? And so I, I guess recently my thinking has really kind of evolved in that. Well, I don't think that you should automatically discount something a, a government says just because the government says it. Uh, you just have to think kind of beyond that. So, but to to kind of frame the issues uh, is the the Uyghurs are a Turkic Muslim population uh, that in, inhabit the uh, the far western peer, uh, province of China. It's called the the Xinjiang region. In in Chinese, Xinjiang means new frontier. Uh, there's been a lot of historical animosity and conflict between the Uyghur population and uh, the Han ethnic group. And so there's a history more recently of, of terrorism that it has taken root in that area. And it has the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, very concerned. Um, it, in a lot of ways, the, the concerns parallel our own war on terror. So it's not saying that the Chinese Communist Party is justified uh, but it's just kind of going into what their motivations and concerns are in, in the situation. So the way that they frame this is that they openly admit that there are um, facilities there. I, I don't know if you want to call them re-education facilities. The, that statement is a loaded term with historical implications. But the way that they frame it is that there are facilities there. Uyghurs are being sent there, but they're being sent there for um, like job training and things like that. Um, it does appear that some people have been sentenced there. Um, and if you read Peter Lee, we just ran a piece on the Libertarian Institute. He does say there is evidence that of, of a cultural change there, that people are being sent there to get rid of their Uyghur culture and to send them back into society. 
And uh, that's definitely not something that I would endorse. And in fact, I, I think that's pretty horrible. Uh, but at the same time, um, for instance, like when, when the entire world is accusing Saddam Hussein of having weapons of mass destruction, are we really going to sit there and talk about how much of how horrible of a dictator Saddam Hussein is? And, uh, you know, looking in our backyard, we have our own problems, as was already mentioned by Kyle and Connor. So that really is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the, the Uyghur issue. But there's so many different aspects to it. There's, there's, um, there's the Adrian Zenz aspect. He's a, a German sociologist think tanker who has published papers uh, accusing the Chinese Communist Party of genocide against the Uyghurs. Um, I think even he openly admits that the Uyghur population is not falling, that it's just the, the growth rate in their population has changed. And it turns out that his research was based on shoddy math. And uh, he, he attributes the genocide to what is a change in family planning and a shifting in the one-child policy because it never applied to the Uyghurs until 2018. Um, so we have that aspect of it. We have the phony and faulty institutions like the New Line Institute that publishes one of like the bumper study on it. We have uh, defectors that come forward with eyewitness testimony of atrocities whose stories don't line up and who have connections to the National Endowment for Democracy and the World Uyghur Congress. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's the whole Falun Gong aspect. And you mentioned China Uncensored. And uh, China Uncensored has connections to Newtong Dynasty and the Falun Gong. And uh, the Epic Times are all kind of these, uh, these sibling organizations of Falun Gong, which is a, a, uh, a religious group. Some people have accused it of, of being a cult. I don't necessarily endorse that view, um, but they, they do state their motivations pretty openly and outwardly is that they are against the Chinese Communist Party. All of these accusations of organ harvesting really kind of boil down to them. And uh, they've been making these accusations for a long time because they were ousted from China in the 90s and fled to the United States and have had a real vendetta against the, the Chinese Communist Party since then. So um, that, that's kind of the issue in a nutshell. And, and I try and do it justice in sound bites, but it really is an issue that is too complex for you know, just a two-minute synopsis. Right. And we hear all the right wingers, you name the right winger right now, they're so good on actually a majority of issues on the Middle East about, um, you know, all these foreign interventions. But then all of a sudden you bring up the dirty China word. Once again, now they all turn back. It sounds like Bill Crystal. Right? They're, they're almost inseparable. So um, it, it kind of frustrates me because you want to kind of side with these people and take the wins where you can get them. But then all of a sudden they say, well, we should stop all these wars in the Middle East because we need to focus on China. So um, as we're recording it on um, this, it's Feb February 24th of 2022. And, uh, you know, we're having a little bit of uh, issues in Ukraine, to say the least. And a lot of people are talking about, um, you know, potential issue in Taiwan. And I think I saw an article saying that um, China was flying um ships over um, doing something near Taiwan. So uh, maybe we kind of go around and explain why we might have interest in Taiwan and what it might look like if something were to break out there. So uh, I guess, Connor, start off. Why does America have any kind of interest in defending Taiwan should something happen? Uh, well, 
you know, I mean, there's the whole history of the the, the war between uh, the nationalists and the communists after the Second World War, where the nationalists uh, lost and fled to Taiwan. Uh, the essentially the American Navy stopped the communists from taking the island and and reunify. I mean, and 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 reclaiming you know control over it. Um, and for from then on until about 1979, um, the American government policy was to recognize the Republic uh, People's uh, the Republic of China as um, as basically uh, you know the the, the Chiang Kai Shek government as being the rightful rulers of all China. And then in 1979, we derecognized uh, Taiwan and recognized. Um, the uh, recognized the Beijing government as being the rightful rulers of the country and uh, enacted a, a policy called strategic ambiguity, where it's really unclear uh, whether or not we would intervene to defend Taiwan in the event of a, a war and that we oppose, um, you know, any uh, reunification by anything other than peaceful means. So it's it's meant to it's meant to maintain you know peace and stability they say across the strait and and it basically did for a very long time uh, in fact there was a policy the great gareth porter has a piece about uh, how i mean american diplomats had a policy called uh, dual deterrence that goes back to the the early 90s where if basically if taiwanese uh, officials uh, you know heads of state got too out of hand in in you know getting close to declaring their their independence uh which would trigger a, a major crisis across the strait the americans would intervene and use their leverage with taiwan to stop that uh and also maintain a level of deterrence with china where it's like hey you know basically standing in between them and saying okay taiwan you calm down and don't start anything in China, don't mess with Taiwan because you don't know what we're liable to do. And we, we may come to their defense and we, this could be a serious uh, war. Um, but at some point that changed during the Obama administration. And it really was in service of the Asia pivot and this new cold war that we see now with under, I mean, I usually blame the neoconservatives, but you, you're, it's, we're really talking about them and their liberal interventionist dialogue, uh, analogs. Uh, and what we have now is a Cold War against Russia and China concurrently instead of, you know, the old realist position in the Cold War balancing one against the other. So uh, and, and again, this justifies ever increasing military budgets, regardless of what parties in power and what administration we see. Uh, now, as far as the Taiwan thing goes, like why it's so important to like American military dominance is because the idea that the hawks talk about is if we didn't intervene to, uh, to defend Taiwan, and if China were to take uh, the country back by force, which there's a lot of reasons to uh, there's a lot of reasons to believe that that China doesn't intend to do that or would only do that as a very last resort. Um, but the idea is is that if we didn't intervene, then it would jeopardize our security architecture in the region. And that Japan and Korea and other states there would not be, feel that they could depend on us, the Philippines, to come to their defense uh, in the event of conflict with China. And then the Bill Crystals of the world were warned that, as he did in the in, in the debate with Scott Horton, that oh, then they're all going to go for nukes, and you know it's going to be chaos and this sort of thing. So, uh, 
But I mean, I also believe that Taiwan is seen as a, a vehicle to basically build an American aircraft carrier off China's coast in the form of the island of Taiwan. Uh, and also, I mean, we see lawmakers proposing uh, bills that would guarantee Taiwan you know, billions of dollars in aid every year from the Americans. Uh, and it's, it, it, it also serves to gin up tensions with China, like I say, to justify uh, further expansion into the region and to contain China. I mean, it's literally their greatest excuse for the Asia pivot, which is why, you know, I think it's very hypocritical. You mentioned Tim Poole. I always think of his, the moment in his interview with, uh, with Scott, when he's, uh, when he, you know, he, he essentially pisses himself every you know, day about Taiwan, right? And so he mentions that he believes the Abraham's Accords are these monumental uh, peace deals that Trump accomplished. And a lot of these sort of America first people like Joe Kent parrot that same rhetoric, which is completely false. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Scott says to him, well, wait a minute, let's fight about the Abraham's Accords. He goes, you know, it's in, they're encircling Iran. It's just a bunch of welfare for the military industrial complex. And they throw the Palestinians under the bus uh, and subjugate them uh, to continuing uh, apartheid and occupation. And, uh, and Tim Poole goes, why should I care about Palestine? So it's so hypocritical. And I think that I think to your point, you know, a lot of these uh, right wingers use it as an excuse to gin up the tensions with China and to get people really scared and to, you know, fuel um, acceptance or enthusiasm about this new Cold War and this Asia pivot in sort of a new way, instead of, you know, it being Obama talking about a free and open Indo-Pacific and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it just kind of works on, um, it, it works to make people think that there's a war that we should fight to defend some, uh, to, to defend people and be like heroes again, you know, as they, you know, the idea being that like, you know, like we were in World War II. So we, we hold military exercises out there in that region that are, you know, the largest uh, naval exercises in the Pacific since the World War II era. Uh, and as you said about the air defense identification zone, that's a very useful propaganda tactic because, um, because you know, the air defense identification zone is not recognized under international law. Uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone extends thousands of miles into mainland China. So as Peter Van Buren will point out, you could have planes just sitting on their runways in China, technically violating Taiwan's air defense identification zone. And actually, when those planes go through, for the most part, they're usually you know, about 100 miles or more away from the island itself. So there's a lot of hyperbole involved in trying to scare uh, the American people into thinking, here's somebody else we have to come and defend. And to your, uh, I'll just say, I mean, it's also, you know, hypocritical when they, um, because again, I mean, people like Joe Kent, uh, who support the Abrahams Accords, this idea that they want to defend uh, Taiwan and that China is horrible to their Muslims, these policies that they in endorse actually cement American um, involvement in the Middle East. And, and they're usually actually not all that great on the Middle East when you look at like, you know, how many of them oppose removing sanctions on countries like Syria or ending the military occupation there or, um, you know, start using leverage with Israel to stop their weekly bombings of the country. Uh, and we just saw recently, Kyle wrote a great article about it. Um, you know, uh, Tim Pool had a guest on, I'm sort of, blanking on his name, frankly, but he's running for uh, Mills. There you go. He's a former Trump DOD appointee. He's running for Congress, I believe, in Florida. 
And, uh, you know, he paints, he justifies uh, the genocide you referred to earlier in Yemen. uh, And it's indefinite continuation because he points to the great Iranian boogeyman and and falsely uh, portrays the Houthis as Iranian proxies. So, you know, these guys, they put out kind of like, you know, um, rhetoric that is transparent often, but it's meant to sort of lure people in who want to be on the right side of these issues, but then they kind of funnel them off into a anti-China position, which is very convenient because, you know, I mean, the national security strategy is no longer, uh, since Trump anyway, they no longer really focus on, um, or they, they, I mean, they do, but ostensibly the idea is that we're seconding, uh, you know, counterterrorism operations in North Africa and the Middle East in favor of focusing on the new great threats, which are uh, Russia and China. Yeah. And, and moreover, to just to jump in here, they, yeah, they people like Tim Poole, they get good libertarians on and make them appear to be China hawks or they get people on who are libertarians who aren't really that great on China and who, who endorse these ideas that he seems to feed to them. And I don't know if it's because they don't know what they're talking about and they just kind of nod and agree, or if they, they don't want to like, they, you know, Tim Pool's doing me a favor by giving me a platform. So I'm not going to rock the boat and call him out on this stuff. So I, I think it's a complicated thing, but it, it really concerns me to have, Otherwise, good libertarians go on and, and endorse this hawkishness. So it was funny when uh, Pete Quinones was on there. And, not Pete. Uh, not Pete. Yeah, no, 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 right, right. But um, he had started mentioning like, hey, dude, China's not really that much of a, you know, economic powerhouse as they may want you to believe. Like 30% of their agriculture is still done by hand. And like the entire room went completely silent. <laughs> it, it, the, the board just went like right over Tim's head and they moved on to something else. Uh, Kyle, you got anything to add? Yeah. So just real quick on the on the Taiwan issue, uh, you mentioned there were, I think, nine uh, Chinese planes that entered the Taiwanese ADIZ, the air defense identification zone. uh, And that did happen within a few hours of, you know, Russia's incursion into Ukraine. It's not exactly clear to me that the two are necessarily related, although they, you know, it, it could have been like on China's part, like did at the same time to like maybe make a point or something. I don't know, but uh, it, it wasn't a threat in any way to, you know, actual Taiwan or anything. Uh, Taiwan's ADIZ, if you look at a map of Taiwan and zoom out enough where you could see the Philippines, it actually splits like, you know, Taiwan's uh, ADIZ goes all the way to the Philippines and they meet in the middle. And oftentimes the uh, where the Chinese flights are in these particular flights were in that area and so it's not you know exactly like even in in any way all that provocative uh but at the same time taiwan is not a country uh important point and that is official enshrined in u.s law that we have a one china policy that means one government for mainland china and taiwan and uh the u.s recognizes that government as the ccp that you this is u.s law now you know, it is an independent entity and does have its own independent government, and it is somewhat wealthy. And so it's an absolutely great, uh, you know, piece for the military industrial complex because Taiwan has its own money. Uh, but then also we could pour in military aid and help them finance all the military sales and everything like that. And it's located next to a, you know, 
China, which on the map is a big, but also just in reality, uh, I think if China really wanted to, they could fight a war and take back Taiwan. I don't think there's a whole lot the U.S. could do about it if China really wanted to, just like the U.S. couldn't do a whole lot about Ukraine when Russia really wanted to go in. It's just, you know, if if Mexico or if China and Russia did everything they could to prevent the U.S. from taking Mexico City, it wouldn't matter. Right. It's just it's too close to the United States. I mean, I guess they could go war with the U.S. We could go to war with Russia or China or something like that. But we actually can't, you know, just prevent China from taking Taiwan. It it won't happen. Uh, But at the same time, there's really no indication that China is anywhere near the point where they're looking for a military uh, action to retake Taiwan. They have, I guess, officially dropped that, you know, they're looking for peaceful reunification. Now they just say, you know, we're looking for reunification. But, you know, that's, uh, I think, a pretty broad thing to to still for for China's official policy to be. Uh, I think Connor already mentioned Peter Van Buren, former U.S. diplomat to the region. And he explains that, look, these are all countrymen. These are all uh, you know, Han Chinese are, you know, Han for the most part, and, you know, of Chinese descent. Uh, the, these are people who were a part of the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government and fled to Taiwan, right? So they they are kind of all still countrymen in, in that way. There's less of an incentive to fight a war. Um, and, and, you know, there, there would just be, a, there's a lot of time between now and any war over uh, Taiwan. And so it's really perfect for the military industrial complex, right? Because then there's constantly a crisis. There's constantly a need to make sure that Taiwan has more weapons so it could defend itself from China, which in sense, the invasion is probably never coming. It makes it very easy, right? And, and so I, I think that's really the, the role that Taiwan is currently playing in the U.S. empire is it helps to, you know, demonize China and it's just a perfect place to pour in weapons. Right. It kind of seems like this was such a hot button topic. And I've kind of thought about it this way is that kind of the political left will use racism as a tool to beat, you know, their voters and people into submission. And the right will kind of use China as the same deal. Like, oh, China's going to take your job or, you know, there's systemic racism all around you and we have to do something to fix it. So it's kind of like selling you the problem so that way we can have something to fix. Um, And we're kind of seeing this with Ukraine too, right? So we know that the whole deal where we overthrew Ukraine in 2014 with literal Nazis (laughs) and um, you know, Joe Biden's fingerprints are all over Ukraine. And now all of a sudden that we've continued to kind of poke the bear with Russia and continue to, you know, kind of mess around Ukraine right on Russia's doorstep when they finally get pissed off and do something we're surprised. And it seems like we're doing something similar with uh, Taiwan when um, Kyle, you had said that we're kind of sending them weapons. So, um, any one of you guys kind of take it from there, but, you know, it kind of seems like we constantly do this selling of the problem. You know, we sit here and arm another country and then all of a sudden their neighbors are like, Hey, you know, what the hell are you doing? And then we're surprised when something finally happens. So, uh, yeah, do you guys think that any, you know, what is China's interest in actually going and taking over Taiwan? And do you guys really see that as all likely? I know Kyle, you kind of said it didn't seem all that likely, but do you think that if we continue to kind of do the same deal that we're doing in Ukraine, do you think that's a possibility? Well, yeah, I think it's a possibility in the long run that way, if the U.S. continues to say that, you know, we're going to defend Taiwan and recognize Taiwan as an independent country, I think that is going to provoke uh, China into seeking a military solution faster. I think ideally for um, um China, 
the what they would like to have happen is for some kind of political reunification, diplomatic reunification with Taiwan, because it's a lot cheaper. You know, it's expensive as hell to, to you know, wage a war. Uh, I'm sure that this is going to cost Putin. I mean, the military buildup alone, just moving all the troops into the region probably costs uh, hundreds of millions, if not more. But when you're looking at, you know, actually carrying out these military operations and then, you know, the trade-offs when soldiers start coming home in body beds and everything like that you know this this is a massive cost and so if you could have reunification in a way that you know doesn't involve military action then yeah i i you know i do think china wants that and if it was like on the table tomorrow i think they would take it you know what i mean like i it, it's a very real concern and it's a very real issue for china you know taiwan is a part of china according to china and uh and I, you know, from I think the Taiwanese perspective now, I don't know how much this is the case with like the current Taiwanese government or anything, but I think like historically, for as long as this kind of been its own thing, that they, you know, viewed likewise one China and they just thought that they should be the ones that controlled the whole thing, right? And so you know, all I, I guess all that plays into it. Now, uh, yeah, I do see this thing that the U.S. government is doing, and uh, the Chets are really like, you know, we're, we're we can't cash them, right? So we promise all these countries things that we can't follow through on. So we we promise Ukraine that we'll defend their territorial integrity and sovereignty, and we'll put them on the map. Uh, path to NATO membership. They're never going to be members of NATO. Yeah, I would have said this a week ago before this happened too. And um, they're, they're never going to be able to defend themselves and the US was never going to defend them. All those things happened, right? Uh, same thing with the Afghan government. You know, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, the US kind of like led them on about how much support they were going to get. And then once it left, it's like, ah, uh, and so, yeah, this is a, a possibility for Taiwan as well, that if the U.S. does go far enough rhetorically and pushes China uh, to believe that the only way that they will ever get Taiwan back is to uh, immediately invade, then, yeah. And especially if the U.S. starts talking about putting, like, upgraded weapons and things like that in Taiwan, that might start to push China's hand, right? If they think that Taiwan's going to have Patriot missiles, they're going to, you know, get a lot more interested in making sure that doesn't happen right so i've also heard a lot about geographically china is not really set up to kind of take over taiwan because they're surrounded by people who aren't particularly fond of them so um anyone can kind of grab this one uh do you guys kind of want to lay out that that dynamic and explain why china may not it's just not exactly advantageous for them to kind of go on any kind of military adventure currently well primarily i've talked about this before and i've kind of downplayed the possibility that china would take taiwan in the past um i i think one of the big things is that i i think there was a big article in politico about it about exactly how how the manpower and resources that would be required to take over taiwan would just be immense may like this article put forward like D-Day times five, like over a million soldiers you might need to take the island. Uh, the, the coastline that faces China is rocky. There aren't a lot of good landing places and beachheads. And you have a Taiwanese population that has been preparing for war for decades. Um, now, on the other hand, you have Lyle Goldstein. And there was a great art, uh, interview that he did with Scott Horton a few months ago. Um, during hunting season, because I was hunting when I listened to it, I think November. Um, But he was talking, uh, he's the director at uh, Defense Priorities, uh, the director for Asia Engagement. 
and he's he's former Navy intelligence, and he was saying that he thinks that uh, China would be able to take Taiwan in a couple days with uh, with coordinated covert ops or or you know like little squads of special forces and targeted bombardments. And I think that what we're seeing in Ukraine, I, I mean, honestly, to me, I'm I'm kind of reevaluating how I look at things because um, I didn't particularly think that that Putin would invade Ukraine or or conduct military actions in it the way that we see it now. But I think we see with Putin's in Putin's, I, I don't know how you want to classify it. The operation into Ukraine is a very targeted precision strike operation, and if China could do that in Taiwan and use special forces to cut the head off the snake and, and, uh, and, and do something like that. I think it's, it's a real possibility, but, but um, I would take Lyle Goldstein's opinion very seriously. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add that uh, the U S makes this infinite, infinitely more likely the more and more it sends, you know, upgraded F-16s and, you know, AGM 84 E missiles that can hit, you know, deep inland targets. Uh, this started under Trump. Uh, in particular, we're helping them build their own uh, submarine uh, fleet. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, the other thing too is you have acts in Congress um, on the, you know, that are uh, they haven't been passed yet. But I mean, things like the defending, um, I almost said the defending Ukraine sovereignty act. It's the uh, it's uh, preventing Taiwan invasion act. Uh, which is essentially, you know, it's supported by Elaine Luria, who is this very hawkish Democrat from Virginia, a repre uh, representative, but it was put forward by Republicans. And basically what it does is it overturns the constitutional authority uh, on, you know, war declaration and says to Biden, you know, if we pass this, we give you a blank check. You can declare war on China if, if Taiwan is threatened, because we don't want to have to wait to go to war with China. So if they make a move, let's just go to war without ever voting on it. I mean, not that we vote on war anymore, but, you know, that uh, there's also a concurrent push by uh, people like Tom Cotton and other hawks um, who push a policy, you know, Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign Relations, who push things like, you know, we should just switch to the policy to strategic clarity and say, you know, we'll go to war with China, you know, if they if they uh, attack Taiwan. And, you know, we sail warships to the Taiwan Strait every month. Uh, as I said, we Biden has increased the uh, military provocations. We had aircraft carrier strike groups in, uh, you know, the South China Sea. We, we sent 10 10 times last year, which is almost double what Trump did in 2020. And again, uh, the, the war planes and the spy planes flying around the area uh, more than doubled between Trump in 2020 and Biden in 2021. The, the Chinese defense ministry was pointing that out as early as April. They were saying that uh, the, uh, you know, the number of uh, warships had increased by, I believe, 20 percent and um, the number of uh, war, uh, war planes uh, flying around had increased by uh, 40 percent. So, you know, I mean, also, you know, China is surrounded by, it's not like they have a bunch of allies surrounding them. They have, a, you know, about a 1400 mile border with India and that border, especially in the Himalaya, the Western Himalayas is unstable. Uh, there've been some major scuffles where dozens of people have been killed, not with bullets, but, you know, they beat each other to death. Uh, they've had, you know, recent uh, vo uh, volatile relations and, and violent incidents with uh, Vietnam. North Korea is an unstable neighbor, uh, you know, South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, you've got all that American military aircraft, uh, you know, ready to just decimate uh, China's air force uh, in the event of any kind of a conflict. 
Uh, and we're continuing. We have the quad, which is the quadrilateral security dialogue, which is really uh, a fig leaf for kind of bringing a NATO style anti-China alliance into the region. Um, now, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, NATO's uh, Project 2030, I think it's called Vision 2030 or something like that, uh, they declared a year or two ago that China is a major threat to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which seems absurd. But again, these are, like you said, uh, people who are selling you problems that they already have the solution to. And as Kyle said, it, you know, if they actually moved on Taiwan, my hope is that as bad as that might look, and again, I don't think with barring U.S. further U.S. intervention and um, you know provocation and 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 our emboldening of Taiwan's pro-separatist forces and the more hawkish elements in their government, um, and you know building up all these lines. Yeah, you, know, you hear things from Australian politicians where they say, you know, we're going to be at war with China in five to ten years. We're getting ready for that right now. That's why we're you know buying all these. That's why we need these subs. Um, you have people like Steve Bannon running around with his Committee on the Present Danger China think tank with uh, Frank Gaffney saying, you know, I, I think ten, I think five years ago or six years ago, he said we're going to be at war in the South China Sea in five to ten years. Um, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson said to Tulsi Gabbard recently, he goes, uh, you know, going to war with Russia over Ukraine is absurd. It's insane. We could all die in a nuclear war. There are uh, uh, interests, though, that we would have to fight over. Absolutely. Like uh, shipping lanes in the South China Sea. So, uh, you know, but I, I guess, you know, I'm sort of going off on that tangent. But I mean, as far as the, the China thing, we are building a powder keg there. And uh but, you know, at the same time, there's so much trade going on between um, China and Taiwan. You know, China is Taiwan's greatest trade partner. Uh, there's, you know, they have about, you know, over the last 30 years, nearly $200 billion invested in China. Uh, you know, the cross-strait trade is like at $150 billion. And Peter Van Buren, uh, the formerly mentioned uh, Peter Van Buren has had, uh, he's written a series of articles for the American Conservative about this that are, are very, very good. And and uh, and and he's you know he does not believe that this is uh, likely to happen. I mean, he talks about how you know the the Chinese Navy has three of these Type zero seventy five ships that can only you know hold a thousand men, and they need, as Pat said, a million people or more to take the island. And uh, Taiwan has anti ship missiles that uh, you know can. Re it, or have like a 60 mile range and they're they're getting closer and closer to fielding a 200 mile anti-ship missile um and uh but but again as i said i mean the the goal is to build a a military force that can contain china and fight this inevitable massive naval battle and there are people in our society in the think tanks uh even in the independent media uh, who are salivating at the prospects of this. And um, it's just, uh, it's fair, it's a very insidious thing because it's much more bipartisan than people realize. I mean, really, the Democrats, namely Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton, were really leading it in the last. 10 years or so. I mean, Trump became more synonymous with it because he was more outwardly anti-China, but the policy existed before he came in. He just expanded it. And then Biden, again, has just, you know, doubled it, you know, and 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 maybe gonna, he's probably going to triple it. I mean, the, uh, 
the the risks at this point are are I mean Biden has said like we are in extreme competition with China we are going to win the 21st century on my watch they will never become you know this most powerful country on earth. and they're they're really not I mean their economy has got all, myriad problems with it they've got all kinds of demographic issues I think they have less arable land per capita than Saudi Arabia they're the world's greatest uh, food importer in the event of a war and international isolation they would be in very, very, very bad shape. And uh, they have a lot of, uh, because of the one child policies and the, and the restrictions on, on childbirth, they have a, a huge problem of young men who will never be married, uh, you know, just waiting to essentially revolt if there's, if there's ever a major crisis like that. And they have, they know all of this. And, um, I mean, they've got horrible health problems when you look at the, the pollution and the diabetes issues, their real estate bubble, the corruption, the fact that most of those massive infrastructure projects will never make as much money in returns as they cost to build in the first place. And um, but it, it serves as this wonderful, wonderful uh, boogeyman uh, to sell the American people on. And, and there's really no reason for us to go, uh, to war with them. They have, uh, we have a, you know, a trillion dollars invested there. Uh, they have, I believe somewhere around $150 billion invested in America, but there's a strong push in, uh, particularly coming up now in American right-wing politics to push for a decoupling either gradually or suddenly. And I'll just point out that there is a heavy influence by people like Peter Thiel, who supports people like Joe Kent and Blake Masters, who are very popular uh, with these uh, libertarian paleos you've talked about, and they are very enthusiastic. They don't even necessarily have to come out and say it, but they'll sell, they'll say things to you like, um, you know, if you watch Blake Masters commercials, I don't understand exactly why paleos are so into him. Maybe because he throws out nice uh, sentiments about you know the Federal Reserve and inflation and and this kind of thing, and that's great. But it's got you know <laughs> the the costs outweigh the benefits uh, greatly. You know he talks about how we need to be uh, making our own uh, you know semiconductors and our own antibiotics. And then you have Joe Ken who comes and he says you know China is a threat to Taiwan and they're going to be at war with Taiwan. You know sort of assuming the sale. And then you have people like Joe Kent uh, who are talking about you know, actually decoupling. I mean, he says it's the number one, should be the number one national security priority is decoupling with China. And he talks about how we're already at war with China and we need to build a coalition of nations to confront them over their genocide of the Uyghur Muslims and launch, you know, you know, he doesn't think we have sanctioned China nearly enough. And of course, Biden hasn't lifted the tariffs. So, uh, you know, and the Democrats are not good on this issue. They're really not. I mean, I, I, I again, it's, it's unfortunate. It's kind of like Iran or, or, or even the Russia situation. There just isn't a sizable contingent because the left that we all know and love that we read at antiwar.com and consortium news, uh, et cetera, does not really have a voice in American Democratic Party politics. Um, and, and, and truthfully, there's this problem you see with people like Bernie Sanders is a great example or Trump, or these guys I'm talking about now, where they, they, they're nominally good on certain issues, but they're very bad in foreign policy in certain areas. And so, um, yeah, I guess I'm just saying that the war becomes, you know, exponentially more likely uh, because less people, I mean, people are afraid actually to push back on this stuff. It's a very, um, you know, I'm glad you're, we're doing this show because frankly, libertarians seem to be very reluctant 
Uh, and I don't know if it's because they believe that the uh, the new right posed it could be great allies of ours and we could build this wonderful coalition and it would be so based. I, I don't understand. Uh, you know, it's, it's a poison pill and it needs to be addressed soon because it's one of these things like with Russia where, you know, it's much easier, unfortunately, to say, you know, enough of the endless wars in the Middle East. You know, unfortunately, the American people never get bored enough or sick enough of them to make sure that they're done and that we get our troops out of the region that we lift sanctions and stop occupying these countries. Uh, but they say, you know, we're not interested in that anymore. We, we want to focus on bigger things like going to war with Russia and China. And um, that's uh, becoming more and more prevalent. Right. And it definitely seems so. Um, so, Pat, do you have something to add there? I, I think it. I, I don't know. I think it really just kind of boils down to what your priorities are. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in, in Kyle and Connor and I have talked about this before on shows is that libertarians, I mean, anti-war is the most important issue. At least that's our North star. And, and Connor, I think in, we have a group chat going and Connor was saying earlier today that, and I, I agree with him is that sometimes anti being anti-war comes first before being libertarian. And um, I, I, I agree with that, but I don't think the paleos would because to them, all of a sudden in their issue hierarchy, the issue of fighting the COVID regime has catapulted to number one. And I'm not okay. saying that's not important, but I'm saying that, you know, nuclear annihilation is pretty damn important too. Okay. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And a lot of people that I actually really like that I've been on this show actually, and I'm not knocking these people, but they say, I don't care what you know what your issues are if you're going to the COVID regime you know you got my support and i'm like well maybe we should be a little bit more you know not so myopic on this one thing so and that's well, not it, to say the COVID regime isn't a big deal no. but like if you have somebody that's literally saying like a ron DeSantis who would essentially probably go to war with iran because he's so pro-israel and he's for all the foreign intervention he's for all the nsa the spying everything everything that really made you know the last 20 years so bad he's for but he's good on covid so we could throw all that stuff to the side but just because he's good on this one issue okay well not that i'm saying covid's gonna ever be over at a definable point but should we really kind of sacrifice everything that we as libertarians have spoken out so loud against just to support this ending this one issue. I, I don't think that's a worthwhile trade. And it, I mean, it's not that we can't issue ally for like, we can't, it's not that we shouldn't make single issue coalitions. It's just, do you want to wed yourself to this figure? You can praise them for being good on COVID stuff, but you call them out when they're bad. I don't think that's, too hard of an ask. Right. So I kind of got my balls busted about this because I was told, you know, what do you mean by holding someone accountable? And it's like, okay, we can ally with people once again. And Ron Paul was all about this, about building coalitions. So we can ally with people in saying no to the COVID regime, but that doesn't mean we have to hop on board with everything. And this is kind of where I see a little bit of the flaw in the paleo movement is that we're siding with a lot of people who are bad on a lot of stuff. And it's basically just, well, we want to seat at the table, so we'll throw aside a little bit of principles, which I can understand, but, you know, how much you want to chip away at that before you realize you're no different than, um, you know, Mitt Romney or John McCain. And I don't think a lot of guys would get to that point, but, um, you know, if we're going to sit here and support people who are 
talking about going to war and saying that China is our greatest threat. Um, those people need to be criticized. And if we're going to put our voices behind them, then we need to make sure that we have enough capital with these people that we can convince them that, like, look, we cannot do this. This is not a reasonable proposition at all. I'll say it too, uh, just briefly, that I, I don't think it's the greatest, just on a political basis, the greatest strategy be, to be like a lot of other people. Um, because if, co- you know, a lot, I've, it's always bugged me that logically it doesn't make much sense to be like, I just want to go back to 2019. I just want to go back to 20. Like, well, then they'll just lock you down and take away all your rights again over something else. Because all the problems, the foundation of what caused all this is already there. And and the idea that like, I know, look, I'm not trying to diminish the COVID regime at all. But I am saying that if you pick some issue like that and then, uh, you know, make the anti-war um, issue secondary or tertiary, first of all, I think that's just morally wrong, especially when we live in the empire and we're out in war in all these different countries and have the blood of millions on our hands. And, you know, it's it's trillion dollars plus a year on all this mass murder. And uh, it's the first thing we should stop. Um, but at the same time, if you just take one issue and decide that uh, that if it's not that, that that's the one so we can be, you know, because a lot of people, unfortunately, I mean, not unfortunately, but the COVID, the anti-COVID regime politics are shared by a lot of people on the right. So we would just be kind of like, it's almost like if you were to say in Ron Paul's era that like, I like Ron Paul, but uh, if, you know, if, if you're against lower taxes, then you're on my side. You know, then you're on my side, like regardless of whatever else, you know, I understand I, I the war, you know, the war in Iraq is horrible, but, uh, you know, I, I taxes that that is that that's the main issue for us right now is we need to lower that. And then, you know, meanwhile, it, it's just it's just not a good strategy to me. I don't I don't understand because there's so much, especially these people we're talking about who are these kind of uh, hawks in, in doves clothing. Uh, they they are very adept at using those kind of um you know, those issues that we have in common to exploit, you know, the situation to kind of, like I said, poison pill our movement. I think it's just unwise because you have so many people that are, you know, anti-lockdown and anti-vax mandate and all these things. And I am too. I'm not vaxxed. I hate the mask stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm totally, it's, it's the, the corporate welfare was, and, and the, the restriction, the violations of civil liberties was the most, one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. But during the during 2020, I mean, we started sailing aircraft carriers and warships and war, and flying warplanes all over China's near abroad. And if you were reading antiwar.com, you could see this building and building and building. And it was, you know, it was terrifying. But at the same time, much of the left, much of the right and much of libertarians just didn't talk about it. And um, and now the problem has gotten much worse. It's kind of like how now everybody's paying attention to Ukraine. Uh but like if we've been paying attention before and put a stop to all this, we would be in a much, much better situation and we wouldn't be facing, uh, you know, because it's very possible. I mean, the, the reaction by Biden today is to double down on the policies that led us to the crisis uh, and the war, current war ongoing in Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe not, he's maybe not sending arms now to uh, Kiev. But I mean, sending more and more troops to the Eastern Europe and launching, uh, imposing more and more sanctions. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, unfortunately, this is this has to be addressed because it does threaten to blow up the whole planet. And then your opposition to the covid narrative won't really mean um, much at all.
Yeah, I think COVID will be the least of our issues if we have a hot nuclear war. Um, so kind of tagging on to what Connor was saying earlier about um, China being a powder keg, um, their population probably isn't that happy with this whole one child policy. And from what I understand, um, a lot of the men that are kind of enlisted in the military, they're like, we really like aren't digging this stuff at all. And we do, I think we have a trillion dollar a year trade deficit with China and we do lots and lots of trade with China. Um, so Kyle, you can kind of lead from here. It, it just doesn't seem in our best interest to continue to push this issue with China because right now we're benefiting from this trade relationship with China, right? All we got to do is print money and then we buy stuff and then all these boats come here, we get all these goods and then these ships go back empty and clog our ports. <laughs> go, they go back to China to bring us more stuff. Well, once again, we were told that we're losing on these trade deals, but if you really understand anything, and as I'm sure all of us are Austrian economists or into the Austrian school of economics, um, you could just see it doesn't make much logical sense to sit here and say that we're the losers here. So uh, Kyle, kind of build on that and uh, your thoughts surrounding that. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're right on the, the uh, economics, you know, if they're just taking in our debt, I, you know, we will have to pay for that one day. But for now, it is a good deal. And so, you know, why push it, uh, you know, the people who talk about Chinese currency manipulation and everything like that? Well, you, you know, th that really shouldn't be an issue for us. It's only an issue because they own so much of our debt. Although I, I really don't know a lot about it. And I don't know how much of an issue it is. But, you know, just on, you know, when we're talking about DeSantis and Trump and these people and things like that, you know, it is worth remembering that all these people locked us down in the first place, right? If there was somebody out there who really never did lockdowns and really stood up the whole time and was bad on China, that would be one thing. But, you know, the, these people are obviously grifters, right? They they only came to it once it became, you know, like they, they, it was like 60 minutes to for, uh, force DeSantis into it by making up lies about him, making him look like he loved COVID. And like, you know, like they literally drove him to become like more and more radical on this, the left-wing media. And so, you know, that's really all you could count on these people for is to react to the left-wing media. And I mean, to be honest, the left-wing media in this country is so wrong so often that that isn't the worst thing to bet on, right? But at the same time, uh, if you're, you know, placing your hopes in that person, well, then you are placing your hopes ultimately at the wind of the uh, whims of the left-wing media who, you know, drive what DeSantis and Trump do based on what they say about them, right? Like Trump's a total reactionary on this kind of stuff. Now he, he gets them a little bit too, I think, better than DeSantis and, you know, they, they feed into each other, but you know, I, I it, so yeah, if you had like, let's say Glenn Jacobs, who I know has been really good on this lockdown thing the whole time and everything like that. I, I don't know what his foreign policy positions are, but let's just say like, he's kind of bad on China. He's like, yeah, we really can't trust them and we should just do business here and not there. Right. Um, okay. Like that, you know, that, that is tolerable, but for, you know, a China a real China hawk, no, and especially not somebody who's only faux good on this uh, this lockdown stuff, which so many of these guys are. And, and, you know, that that to me is a real problem. It's just like, you know, throwing hope at anyone. And then uh, just just on this, you know, group of people, uh, you, you also have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I, I mean, it just 
why are why is this one of the people you're backing and again you know it's all about just reaction right if if the lefties had you know been forcing everybody to walk into the chamber of congress every time and take off their masks to show their face should be dressing in a full burqa every day you know it right and so it's like again if you're just you know putting all of your chips on the reactionaries then you don't know what you're going to get and that's my real problem with a lot of these uh people that uh the the paleo seem to be betting on one of my one of my big things is i, I i'm working on a piece actually i finished a piece that's waiting to be published about this specifically on ron DeSantis. is that ron DeSantis locked florida down like let's not forget that so by his actions he's telling us that he's willing to impose medical martial law. It's just that, again, Kyle made an excellent point that I'm going to have to add to that article. Thanks, Kyle. Um, was this time bullying him into a different position, man? Like he, I, he, he flipped on the COVID issue once the numbers came across and he thought he could make a point saying, oh, it's not that bad. So it's like I'm against lockdowns when the, when the data doesn't support lockdowns. But if the data does support lockdowns, then I'm imposing medical martial law. And can you trust that person? I mean. Right. Well, this is kind of where I see a lot of weakness in this Florida strategy. And I love Phil Bishop. Don't get me wrong. And I have a lot of respect for him. But, um, you know, this paleo approach and this King DeSantis is dependent on one person. And you're literally hoping that this person never loses. So it's kind of like going to the casino and putting all your chips on the table and hoping you don't lose. So, you know, what happens if things go south? And I'm not saying it's likely because people down in Florida fucking love DeSantis. But what happens if that goes wrong? What happens if, you know, now all of a sudden Florida decides they want somebody blue because they say some good stuff about something that you know, just appeals to them. And all of a sudden they decide, OK, well, we want blue now. Well, now everything you just built, all the power you just gave your King DeSantis down there is now in the hands of, you know, a Democrat governor. Just, just, just think about kind of what you're doing there. And I understand none of this stuff is like a done, like there's time, there's, you need to have some kind of solution. And I agree it's working right now, but you know, what's your long-term goal and what does a long-term look like? Because I guarantee you, Ron DeSantis isn't always going to be there. So who's going to be there to replace him? Is it going to be somebody good? I don't know. But, um, you know, if you look somewhere like New Hampshire, it seems like they're going a little bit more of the systemic route where they want to change things fundamentally. At least that's what I hear from some of the guys up there. I just haven't looked into it that much. But, um, you know, I don't think staking your entire state's existence as being the great state of Florida on one person, no matter what, is a good bet. And I know there's a lot of things other than that that appeal to the paleos other than DeSantis's COVID policy. And I'd be the first one to admit that I would have rather lived under DeSantis than lived under Tony Evers during all this. So I, I think there are some, you know, concessions that can be made on that point. However, I, I think that my argument stands. I, I, of course, I made it. I'd stand behind it. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I live here in Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes north of Pittsburgh. So, uh, yeah, I would have definitely rather lived in Florida. And this kind of goes to the point that I've been seeing a lot of people head on recently, where um, libertarians are mostly guilty of saying they're both the same, but they're honestly not. But to a degree, they are. But, you know, once again, to the libertarians are saying they're all the same. 
where would you have rather lived? You know, Pennsylvania, New York, California, or Florida? Or what was it, South Dakota where Gnome was? I think everybody would, you know, understandably say I would have rather lived somewhere that may have a little bit more boomer cons, but we would have freedom. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that's a sin to say, although some people would agree that it is. Well, if you don't agree, then you are definitely, you know, you're a Lalbert naive <laughs> autist autist autistic person so i yeah i mean i brought up uh this point with uh one of these guys who who i won't name but uh you know i brought up the point that you know blake masters policies about uh you know china and this decoupling in the absence of any discussion about the asia pivot make war vastly more likely and I suggested that uh, his connection, he, he's received, he, so he's the COO at Thiel Capital. Peter Thiel founded Palantir, which is a, a CIA contractor. It was funded with CIA money from InQtel. Now, Palantir has contracted with, for a long time, the CIA, the NSA, the Pentagon, the FBI, George Tenet, Condoleezza Rice have been advisors to the company. Uh, so this is a deep state guy. Uh, for fans of the Bilderberg Group, Peter Thiel is a member of the steering committee there. It's, it says so on his on their website. Um, it, the idea that because this guy is like good on wokeness and the culture war, and well, we I don't think we'd agree with his immigration policy, but the paleos certainly do, and they like this idea of uh, they're kind of they're anti free trade. That's kind of the thing now with a lot of these guys. Um, and so they like the idea of um, these policies of decoupling and becoming, you know, more uh, self-sustaining and building up manufacturing here. I mean, they argue that, uh, you know, Blake Masters will argue that if you want to fight inflation, you have to build factories here and make more, more and more uh, of our goods here at home. But I mean, the fact is, is. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, if you uh, just economically, if it's, if you can get cheaper you know, and high quality goods from China, then spending more to make them and to build all the new factories. I mean, it just, it doesn't really make sense on its face. But see, these guys don't talk about the, uh, they don't talk about the Asia pivot, or if they do, they ta they endorse it in the case of like Joe Kent, because all of his policies sort of line up with it. It's not as if he's saying, I want to see more warships and more warplanes in the, in the South China Sea, and we should be sending two warships through the Taiwan Strait every month instead of just one. Uh, they don't have to do that. But in the absence of discussing that, and you have you know, people who are connected like this to the deep state, you know, of course, they're going to tell you some things that you like. But I, I brought this up. And um you know, I was referred to, you know, the guy said that, you know, you're just being an autistic L, which I'm glad to accept uh, that criticism because I am focused much more on foreign policy than these people. So to me, that issue is, uh, you know, paramount. And I'm just not going to get on board with anybody who's a hawk and, you know, on oh, like DeSantis is on Iran and, and, you know, is an Israel firster and an anti-China guy. I just, I have no interest in that, in giving that guy more power. I appreciate the fact that for political purposes, he was anti-COVID regime when it was expedient. But uh, as Pat has uh, discussed, and, and you'll see, uh, I've gotten a sneak peek at that article, 
This is a guy who believes in government by emergency and taking, you know, all kinds of powers in 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 uh, surveying people's medical records and all kinds of things. So this is, and as you said, you know, a big supporter of the surveillance state, uh, et cetera. So you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not throwing my principles out uh, the window to be, uh, you know, to be as part of a larger coalition with the right. I also think that a big problem here is that there is kind of a romanticism to this idea that, oh, the right has learned, it, uh, you know, it's changed its ways. They're anti-war now. Isn't that just so beautiful? And, and uh, you know, it's a nice narrative, but these people don't, like I said, they don't want to end all the aid to Israel. They don't want to stop occupying Syria. They don't want to lift sanctions on Iran. They don't want to stop the Asia pivot. And like Kyle was saying, uh, if this, if these guys were like great on COVID and all these things, and they just happened to be and good on, let's say, other freedom and liberty issues, but they just wanted to like, you know, do reduce the trade deficit with China, build more manufacturing goods here at home, and had some sort of protectionist whatever leftist policy. I'd hate that and think it was stupid, but I might vote for them if they were sincerely anti-war. I don't vote, by the way, but if they were actually talking about pulling all the troops, uh, you know, leaving NATO, pull, ending the Asia pivot, rolling back. Uh, you know, our domination and, uh, you know, occupation of these countries and ending the war in Yemen and these sorts of things, and they really meant it and getting our troops out of Africa, then I would actually sincerely consider supporting them and, and like publicly so. But, um, you know, that's just not what you're getting. Uh, and so, um, and in fact, these guys, I mean, if they are not, I mean, they're saying decouple and they support or just don't have any position on the Asia pivot. So people can laugh at like my concerns like this guy did and go like, oh yeah, I think he wants to nuke uh, type uh, Beijing. You're like, well, I mean, look at the policies, look at Joe Kent's uh, campaign page. The guy's an absolute uh, hawk. And they've taken this kind of Trump narrative. Like the idea is that Trump is anti-war. So people just sort of accept that and they accept that the right liked him, so they must be anti-war. But you look at how they've modified his, his rhetoric. I mean, they're worse on NATO than he is, but the, because they say America first, they go, well, I'm America first. And I believe we should expand the Abraham Accords and strengthen NATO and, uh, you know, make sure and, and, and cut off uh, Europe from Russian gas and, you know, stop Nord Stream 2, but our allies should pay more of their fair share. And you see people like Josh Hawley, uh, uh, Daniel Larison just wrote a great piece about him uh, called The China Hawks Aren't Anti-War at Antiwar.com. Everybody should read it. And, and Larison points out that, you know, Hawley's whole thing is like, you know, I wouldn't be against bringing Ukraine into NATO and starting uh, World War III if our allies were paying more money into the alliance. And uh, and but really, you know, in, in the absence of that, it's just I just feel like we're you know, you know losing resources. And we, what we really need to do is expand our footprint in the Indo-Pacific for our inevitable confrontation with China. And so, you know, I, I just I see most of this as like a massive transparent con. And it's kind of absurd to watch this train wreck happening where everybody acts like it's not happening. And, and there's this encouragement to just kind of go along because the right wing is starting to like us. They don't think we're like gay LP libertarians anymore. And, you know, we're not, uh, what's her name? Who was the uh, former uh, candidate that everybody hated for her BLM stance? Oh, Joe Jorgensen. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so it's just, you know, uh, you know, everybody feels like they have to mop up her mess because everybody is like, I don't want to be, you know, a woke LP blue check. I don't like the LP. The LP today, after Biden's speech said, um, uh, you know, Taiwan is a country, period, which is the worst possible state. Like, yeah, if right. I was trying to, like, make them look as unappealing as possible, 
uh, I probably still wouldn't have come up with a tweet that bad. Um, and so, yeah, so I mean, like, I'm totally not for them. I'm not a member of the LP. I, I support Dave Smith because I, he was influential on me, uh, especially uh, early on when I started listening to his show years and years ago. And I, I know Scott is his right hand man. And that's good enough for me to want to see that guy become as successful as possible in his endeavors. And I think we've seen some proof of concept with his, um, particularly with that video about uh, the war in Yemen on his most recent Rogan experience. But I, you know, I would like to see a lot more of that. And I think it's, I think what we, I hope that people are realizing that you won't differentiate yourself by just being good on COVID like all these other right wingers. What you really need to do is go on these shows like Tim Pool, if you have access to these platforms, or Joe Rogan, and push back on the anti-China propaganda and push back on all the other war propaganda and make foreign policy the leading issue because you know, what did people, what did, I mean, a lot of things appeal to people about Trump and a lot of things appeal to people about uh, Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul. Uh, but, you know, the through line of a lot of the genuine Tea Party movement, uh, the, the sort of Occupy movement um, and the anti, I think largely it's sort of an anti-establishment slash anti-war uh, sentiment that's very strong in America. And I think we can actually come together on a lot of issues. And the most unifying thing from the best parts of the right, the best parts of the left, and the best parts of the libertarian movement is being anti-war. And I think, it's a, I think it's a winning issue. And I think we've seen with the success of that clip that people are hungry for that. I mean, anybody, there's a lot of people who are against the COVID regime at this point, but people making that kind of a statement about what's, you know, a genocide being committed in our name, uh, you know, with, on our dime in Yemen, you know, mass murdering babies by the you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, that is something the American people need to hear. And they would love to oppose it if they knew, if they knew about it, they would absolutely, um, my belief is that they would uh, make sure that it stops. Uh, but there's not um, enough people bringing attention to it and it gets sidelined in favor of culture war issues. And that's very dangerous because the more we become as just wanting to be like a sidekick to the right, especially in this sort of new quasi-independent media climate, it, it, it makes us much more invested in the culture war when, you know, I remember when they said that our, the whole point of this, uh, you know, Mises caucus thing was that we were going to rise above the culture war and that we were going to talk about the issues and namely foreign policy, corporate welfare, the federal reserve, uh, the police state and the COVID regime. And I'd like to see more of that. I don't think we need to make these people really like us. I think we need to tell people the truth. And I think that's what Ron Paul did. And I think that's why he was so successful. Right. I completely agree. And it does seem like it's kind of going that way. And I think that's a lot of the reason why Joe Jorgensen got hit so hard is because we're trying to ally with this political right. And she went on the complete other side of this culture war issue. And she did kind of walk back the tweet. But I mean, I completely understand why people raked her over the coals for that, because it's like, look, you're stepping into this in a time where this is incredibly unpopular you know, with the George Floyd riots and all this stuff going on. And you're going to say that and you're not going to condemn the riots and everything like way prior, like you were literally blowing your entire leg off. Forget shooting your foot. <laughs> you just blew your whole freaking leg off by doing something like that. So I'm interested in seeing how things kind of go moving forward, because here in Pennsylvania, we do have what I think is a strong um, libertarian party, as in we have a lot of elected officials. Now, not like huge seats, like we have mayors and auditors, constables, shit like that. But um, I think the potential is definitely here 
for a bigger libertarian movement. And I'll be the first one to say, if these guys aren't solid on all the issues that they need to be solid on, then if there's better Republicans, then, you know, get the fuck out of there. I'm voting for the Republicans over you if you're not going to be a good libertarian. Um, but yeah, I think that we should water down the message of, you know, that Ron Paul libertarian message just for the sake of gaining political capital with people. Because then, you know, if you sell your soul to the devil, then, you know, is it really worth what you get in return? And especially if it's going to be a hot war with China. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I'll just say that the thing about the BLM, I totally agree with you about the riots. And that was a horrible political decision. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not condoning any of that, what was happening in the George Floyd riots or the LP position. I'm just saying I don't feel like it's my yeah. responsibility to uh, make Tim Poole uh, you know, like us by trying to be more like him and appealing to his audience, who when Scott Horton went on his show and was just saying, you know, we shouldn't go to war with China and combating from an anti-interventionist uh, position, which you could take, you know, what he was saying should appeal to real uh, conservatives and the anti-war paleoconservative tradition uh, or the libertarians. But those people all called him a communist. Um, yep. and, uh, you know, shortly, I, I don't know if it was right after, but I mean, that show is designed to, to deliver propaganda about foreign states. I mean, this is a guy who runs around saying Putin wants to reconstitute the Soviet union. When he talks about China, he has on, you know, Steve Bannon, uh, fallen gong Yamini park to talk about North Korea. And so it's just, um, you know, it's pretty transparent, but I think again, you know, like Pat said, a lot of people have this idea that like, well, I don't want to rock the boat too much because that's such a huge platform. And if I can get on there, oh boy, we could spread the message, but you're diluting the message when you don't see, I think that if somebody went on there, like Scott and Pete did, and uh, that was heroic, but we should see more of that. I mean, cause that is right. what wins. I think that's what wins people over. Um, because it's, the yeah, you got to tell the truth. That's what Ron Paul did in the debates. Um, you know, about the famous blowback moment with Giuliani, the people, the reason people love that he got booed in the audience, you know, the audience hated it. They thought he was a traitor and a, you know, God knows what, but he told the absolute truth and reminded them that, yeah, you know, uh, we killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis during Bill Clinton's era. And we have, uh, we're occupying these people's Holy land and they don't like us. Uh, I don't know if he mentioned the uh, Palestine issue, but certainly the occupations of Palestine and uh, and our support for Israel's war on southern Lebanon. But yeah, I mean, it's those are hard truths and hard pills for people to swallow, but they need them. Once they take them, then that's, you know, we call everybody says, oh, the red pill moment, the red pill. Well, that's what that is. And it's it condensed to its um, you know purest form. It's just telling people hard truths that they they need to know and they're, they'll be very grateful and and you know, people, you know, turned anti-war because of Ron Paul or turned libertarian because of Ron Paul, you're, you're kind of different for the rest of your life. I mean, you may choose like us to get to really make it your life's work and to dedicate yourself to it. And I think that's, I mean, I think that a lot the the best figures in our movement and the people coming up and our colleagues and, and us and uh, we all have a, something to contribute and, you know, our job is not to make ourselves more appealing to more people by not really touching on the subjects that are unpopular, really focusing on the subjects where there's a lot of agreement. Uh, I think that's a recipe for making ourselves, um, irrelevant. Well, yeah, I, I definitely couldn't agree more. And I tend to see that a lot with people, um, 
just trying to play to everybody's interests at the time and trying to be, you know, right on every single issue all the time, or, you know, maybe go with the right wing narrative just so that way you can gain political capital with these people. Um, you guys got anything else to add or do you want to uh, kind of sum up and rock and roll? Well, the last thing I'll say about Tim pool, I guess just a <laughs> shot here. I, you know, he hadn't, he had a video coming out today where he said, he said, um, I did not think that Putin was going to invade Ukraine. And, and, and we were talking about hawks and sheep's clothing. Connor, you were talking about that. And that's exactly what it is. It's like they, they, the cheese in the trap for people that think like us is cloaking things in, oh, I would never support a war. You know, Tim has said things like that. And then he, he literally projects the same narrative as John Bolton. I mean, you could compare mm -hmm. tweets and statements to what John Bolton says, but if he says, hey, now I don't think we should go to war, but you know, when World War II happened, we didn't stop Hitler and he rolled through the Sudetenland and then Poland and all this stuff. And that's what Putin's doing. And then Tim Pool says that he didn't think that Putin was gonna invade Ukraine. He announced the invasion two days right. before it happened. They know what they're doing. And, and yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, just those things is that it, it really, and, and it doesn't seem like anyone really calls him out on it because he, and, and these things just have to be said. It's like, I know that I've gone after Tim a lot, but it, it's, he's so influential on, on libertarianism and uh, people fawning to try and that's not the right word, but people really trying to get on his show and make inroads with him. Um, but but yeah, it's it's just dressing everything up and, and the anti-COVID stuff is the cheese in the in the trap, I think. And then when when you it, it's like um I think Caitlin um Caitlin Johnstone had a dig at the young Turks because they were saying, Oh, we're anti-war, you know, we're anti-war. And she went on Twitter and it's like, well, when you carry every regime talking point and then at the end claim that you're anti-war, I don't really buy that. And I'm sure she used more. Uh, colorful language than that because that's her style but um yeah it's it's just uh it's really infuriating you know and then when people call him out on it for fear-mongering he says hey man like i'm just reading the news it's not you know but when you read the corporate press and the deep state talking points and then don't explore the other side or do any kind of fact checking like you just are carrying their narrative and you're packaging it in a way um, for people who go to Tim Pool thinking that they're getting something other than the mainstream media, it's the same damn thing. It's just wrapped in a different package and you get more convinced of it because it's in a longer format. And really when you boil it down, Tim doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And because they don't have like thousands of dollars of clothes on them and he wears the same shitty cat. outfit every day. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, wow, this guy's like a real journalist. Yeah. yeah. Kyle? Yeah. All right. So I'll try to make this quick, but I think uh, if you check out my article on Yemen that I wrote about Dave Smith on Rogan and then uh, Corey Mills taking a shot at uh, Smith on uh, Tim Pool, you'll, you'll kind of get to like some of my frustration and uh, just kind of point out that, you know, you have all these people pretend to be anti-interventionists. He goes, I'm an anti-interventionist and then repeats proceeds to repeat every hawkish talking point there is on Yemen and it's just it's absolutely infuriating and so uh yeah I, I mean 
that that's a big thing and just like you know we have so much stuff going on right now and obviously you know the the situation in ukraine is very serious and i'm not trying to like downplay it and say that there's nothing going on there and obviously unlike the war between uh or the war in yemen you know saudi arabia the uae and everything like that dropping bombs there's no risk of nuclear war there there's no risk anything could ever come to the united states of america but that's not really the case in ukraine like there is that kind of like it could potentially go really, really wrong. At the same time, the fighting there like isn't the, the most horrific thing. If anybody has seen any kind of footage of the past couple of years from uh, Syria, Tigray, Libya, Mali, Yemen, uh, Myanmar, none of them are, you know, I mean, co- compared to what's coming out of Ukraine, it's just is not that ugly of a con, at least not yet. Now, you know, we could wake up in a couple of days and it, it could be really, really ugly. And, you know, there's, but there's just so much like need right now for everybody to go, oh, we got to say bad things about Putin and anybody. And it's like, okay, but you don't feel this compulsion to constantly do that with the American government, right? Like, there's no need to constantly be like, oh, this person locked down and, uh, you know, the, the treatment of, you know, black Americans and things like that. Like, nobody talks about any kind of the, you know, it's just, oh, China's terrible about their human rights abuses. But I mean, they're pretty pretty bad in america too we run a torture prison on the cuban island you know did cheney paid two psychiatrists what 80 million dollars to torture people and those people still have that money in our free men like that's pretty serious too like there's a lot of a lot of american stuff to talk about here and so i don't know i it's just it's all very frustrating because uh, we, I feel like there's the libertarian movement has so many of its roots in the Ron Paul re- revolution. And that was largely based on being anti-war and being good on foreign policy. And so many of the, you know, like people that came from that movement are very good on like the Iraq war and things like that. But it's become very clear that a large portion of the libertarian movement has lost all interest in foreign policy. And this was the case well before COVID, but it's really becoming an issue now and just have no even instincts on how to react to a lot of these issues and end up taking very hawkish positions. That's why the LP is tweeting out Taiwan is a country. It's because they have no concept of the history of that. Right. And it's extremely frustrating and, and, you know, uh, aligning ourselves with the DeSantis's of the world is just going in the wrong direction. And, and one thing I think is important too, and, and this is praising you and Connor, you want to talk about living in Ancapistan in your head, like studying foreign policy is the exact opposite of that. These are real world situations with real world consequences. I mean, this is where theory meets the road. And um, I, I, I don't know, man, it's, it's, um it's it's difficult it's a difficult subject area yeah absolutely oh connor go ahead i was just gonna say as a final note i i uh with the the sort of the tim pool thing and these people who kind of you know it's very dangerous because the truth is if you want to focus on on foreign policy be very wise for people to start reading into real independent media uh, one of the best ways to do that is to read antiwar.com and click through uh, Kyle's viewpoints, and you'll find a lot of sites and a lot of journalists who are very good on these issues. And it's and you can, I mean, the thing about antiwar.com, sort of like the Mises Institute in the sense of, you know, if you are just, uh, you know, a regular guy or a regular girl who wants to learn about foreign policy and learn a lot about it 
And it's, you can, you could do it. If you read, if you read antiwar.com and you read Dave and uh, Dave DeCamp and Jason Ditz and uh, now Kyle's articles there and you, and you listen to the Scott Horton show and you listen to conflicts of interest and you, you read the viewpoints, you could very quickly become a real, really good on foreign policy. Um, because, you know, I mean, it's highly curated with the, the best sources. And what Tim Pool does by having a design where he's, you know, just reading off mainstream, I mean, it literally is almost like if I was to put somebody out there to subvert the independent media, I would use somebody like Tim Pool to do it. And, and unfortunately, you have a lot of very people who are respected, you know, across the spectrum who say, you know, this guy's great. If you want to be, you know, informed and know about the news, you know, listen to this show. And that's just not true. Um, and so, uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that a lot of people should be focusing on foreign policy. I, I think arguably Ron Paul, as much as he led with and, and the Fed, I think foreign policy was probably 50, at least 51 percent the issue. Uh, I mean, always. I mean, the idea that whenever he was talking about ending welfare programs and all these things that we want to do, ultimately, he always said, you got to bring the troops home first and you got to end the wars and you got to stop killing people and you got to stop spending all this money. We don't have it. We're broke. And uh, it's very, very. I mean, he was opposing NATO expansion and these, uh, you know, the the encroachments on Russia and and, and uh, arms control issues on the debate stage in, during the Ron Paul revolution. Uh, these are issues that the libertarian movement should be leading with because it's there's a there's nobody else who's as good on these issues as us as much as i love the real left and the real paleoconservative right libertarians because of our because of our philosophy are able to be i think honestly i think we have an edge on this issue and there really is no competition when it comes to you know, if we wanted to be the leaders of the anti-war movement, I think we could absolutely do it. And sites like antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute are at the forefront of that. And so, I mean, that's, I guess that those are my closing thoughts, but that, that should be the main, I really do think that should be our main focus. And I think it's the best way to differentiate ourselves right now. And a lot of people from across the anti-war spectrum of all political persuasions read antiwar.com. I mean, the, the multipolarity of that website can't be overstated. Yep. Cool. Cool. Kyle, closing thoughts? No, that's all I got. Great job, guys. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Uh, this was awesome. I would love to do it again sometime. I think this was uh, really valuable. And I think uh, I'm probably going to have to listen to this a few times just so I make sure that I got the most out of this. But um, yeah, you guys are awesome. And like I said, we'll um, have to do it again sometime. So, um, you know, where can everybody find you guys before we uh, get out of here? Libertarianinstitute.org. Mm -hmm. Antiwar.com. Yep. Same here. Cool. Cool. All right, guys. Well, until next time, everybody take care. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.